something that Dan had said. So put that 10.30 slide up there. Um, like Dan said, we start at 10.30 even though we've said 10.15. But we've done that for like, it's been like 10 years to take that 15-minute slide. So if you come here in 60 years, we'll be starting at noon. So that's not bad. 10 years for a 15-minute slide of starting time. So if you come here 60 years from now, we'll have a noon start time. So anyway, hey, uh, a couple things before we start to... Uh, where's Donna? Donna Kostansky's uh, father passed away a couple weeks. Pat Parker's mother passed away a week ago. And I'll just ask, anybody else have a loss in the last couple weeks? I'm just always good to acknowledge that. Um, both of them caring for elderly parents. And so I'm going to take time to pray just for them, but I'm just going to pray for all of us because we're all at different levels of loss. They're at a more significant level of loss, but it's always good to acknowledge that, that not everybody's happy when they come to church, and that's okay. So let me pray, and then we'll look into God's Word. I've got to pray for uh, both Donna and Pat at the passing of uh, their parents, um, Donna's dad and Pat's mom, and knowing uh, there's all degrees of grief and sadness and even joy kind of spun all together that when a loved one dies, especially when a parent dies. So, God, you said that you give comfort, and that's what your Spirit, Holy Spirit does. So I pray not only for Donna, but her extended family as well as Pat and her extended family, that you give the kind of comfort and irrational peace and joy that you say you give those of us who are your children. So I pray for that. But I also pray for others who are here this morning who may have come this morning with um, some other degree of loss or sadness and um, maybe even feeling guilty or bad that they feel that way, thinking they're supposed to feel happy when they come to church. But the reality is, Jesus, um, you take us however we come to you. And you take us whatever our stories we come through to come to you. So whether the individuals here this morning are happy, sad, joyful, frustrated, confused, angry, or even maybe apathetic, but they came anyway. Um, Spirit of Jesus, you know how to meet us. You know how to speak to us, each on our own individual needs. So would you do that? And um, would you continue to be the comfort um, to Donna and to Pat and others who have experienced loss? We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, but, but, okay. Uh, in a minute. In a minute. I love that. Okay. Bill's going to pass out Bibles. I mean, Bill's the Bible man. Uh, Raquel, why don't you come up here for a second? This is Raquel. I'm picking her out of the. She, doesn't, she looked at me like, what are you doing? But she's going to be our. Uh, answer some questions for us here. Raquel is a professor of uh, computer science. So some of you are like thinking, i got a project due in a few weeks. I'm going to talk to her. So Raquel, I'm going to answer these questions for us about odds, all right? All right, first one. Just turn this, turn face the screen. First one, what are the odds that a meteor will land on your home? What do you think? Is it 20 to 1, 213 million to 1, 232 billion to 1, or 182 trillion to 1? What do you think, Raquel? I take C. She takes C. The correct answer actually is D. So the 182, is that Trillion. Trillion. Chance of meteor will hit your home, so okay. you're in good shape. Next one, next one. What are the odds that you will be canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church? <laughs> All right, 
20 to 1, 20,000 to 1, 200,000 to 1, or 20 million to 1. And we don't know anything about your soul or your life. We're assuming it's good. So what do you think? I think it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. What does that tell us about you, Raquel? <laughs> you know what? I'm going to say 200,000 to 1. The correct answer is 20 million to 1 is the odds of any of us being canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church. All right, next one. What are the odds? That you'll be audited by the IRS. 3,000 to 1, 1,500, 800, or 175 to 1. What do you think, Raquel? I have a good accountant. I'm going to say 3,000 to 1. She says 3,000. The average person, though, has a chance of 175 to 1 is the odds that you'll be audited by the IRS. A few more. What are the odds that the Chicago Cubs will win the World Series this year? This is actually, I actually got this from a Las Vegas website just this morning, just to make sure the odds were up to date and accurate. Are you a baseball fan at all? I don't follow baseball, but I'm going Everybody to. knows about the Cubs. <laughs> what do you think? 16 to 1, 35 to 1, 125, 120 to 1, or 0? Oh, that's sad. I can't. And you know what? It I is think? sad. It I, is sad. I, I'm going to go with C. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do like we do when we answer those multiple choice tests. Okay, go with when C. you don't know the answer, just go with C. Go with C. And you're, is that true if anybody takes you for a teacher? Always guess C? Is that where the right answer is usually? Anyway. <laughs> the correct answer, according to Las Vegas Osmander, is 16 to 1. Chance for the Cubs win the World Series. Okay, and then a little closer to home, what are the odds the IU Hoosiers will win the men's 2016 NCAA basketball title? Again, from a Las Vegas website. 20 to 1. I don't visit those frequently, just so you know. Okay. <laughs> 20 to 1, 25 to 1, 55 to 1, or 88 to 1. Oh, this Ruck is tough. I'm going to have to now change my strategy. Okay. I'm going to go with B. The correct answer is B. 25 to 1 odds. All right. Then really, really close at home in this last one, what are the odds that you'll have hemorrhoids? All right. 8 to 1, 15 to 1, 25 to 1, or 88 to 1? You know what? I'm going to have to go with 88 to 1. The odds actually are 25 to 1. So we're going to number off by 25. No, just kidding. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. One more question. One more question, but you can sit down. Here's the next question, though. This is for all of us. Here's the all. We're talking about odds. Here's the next question. What are the odds that you will successfully face any and all crises in your life with confident joy in God's goodness, power, and love? What are the odds, if you're a Las Vegas odds maker, and you know your soul, you know your heart, you know how you deal with bad news, crises, getting knocked off your horse. You know how that happens. What are the odds that you will successfully deal with those in a way that exhibits confident joy in God's goodness, power, and love? Because for a lot of us, if we're honest, sometimes those crises put really big odds. Like, oh, I'm not good at that. I haven't been good at that. I don't know what I would do if that happened. Less chance of the, or more chance of the Cubs winning in the World Series than of you handling those crises well. All right? But we always, you know, there's, we deal with odds in life. But there are sometimes, actually I'll say more times than we care to admit, when the odds of life are, we feel like they're against us and we're pushed against the wall. Um, so we're starting a series today. Here's the title of the series. It's called Against the Odds. What would you do when your back's against the wall? And you feel like that black pawn against all those powerful chess pieces. If you don't understand chess, that's not good. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it's not good. But what do you do 
when you're faced with something, whether it's a relational issue, a health issue, a financial issue, a future decision issue, and crises would be the right word that might describe what you're facing. Could be big crises, could be small crises, but it's still a crisis to you. What do you do? Where does God fit into that? Or do you keep him out? Or is God simply like, like a neighbor, say farmer's there, is that, you know, you just do that and God shows up and gets you out of it? What do you do when those situations hit you in life? How do you handle those kind of things? Because again, I, th- I think if we're honest, um, we all handle those things. Crisis in your marriage, family, relationship, money, future, or maybe it's a crisis in your soul that no one knows about but you, but you feel like you're against the odds. Next slide. What we're gonna, we're, I'm going to reintroduce the weird meter. Um, if you've been around Exodus, some I haven't brought this out lately. Had to get some maintenance done on it. Not really. Uh, the weird meter is, because we're going to read a story here in a minute that has what I would call, what some people would say is a weird, some weird meter moments. Weird meter is measuring those things that happen where supernatural things connect with rea- real life and something happens that you cannot explain except for supernatural realities. And for some of us, it kind of like the weird meter starts to shake a bit, and it seems weird, and you kind of want to blow it off. But we believe in the invisible world. We believe that's the way God made the world. We believe we're not just physical beings, we're spiritual beings. We believe the Holy Spirit and God is active and present and doing all kinds of things, always working, the Bible says. Jesus says, my Father is always working. And so the weird meter is always going. Now, whether we reject it because it just seems out of the context of real life is our choice but i think i'll show you from this passage that it's not really that far from uh possibility of what how you could see god to work all right so we're going to read a story today from second chronicles 20 my guess is many of you probably have not read through second chronicles lately um old testament book uh, chronicles meaning it was the chronicles of the different kings of Israel and Judah. Israel was the combined country when David, Saul, and Solomon were king. It got split up because of civil war, and then the northern part was called Israel in the Bible. The southern part started to be called Judah in the Bible. So when you read about Judah, they're talking about the southern half of the Jewish kingdom that was split because of civil war, and that includes Jerusalem. So a vast army, here's the context, vast army is marching toward Jerusalem. Enemies. Jerusalem was part of Judah, the southern half. And uh, King Jehoshaphat, which is really fun to say. I told my 11-year-old son that. He's like, was he fat, Dad? I said, no, he wasn't, but that's fun to say anyway. Uh, and the Bible tells us King Jehoshaphat is terrified. So I'm going to read it in the Bible. Now, Bill, if you want to follow along, we have a bunch of Bibles here. and I just saw some, I'm just going to read this. It's not going to be on the screen. Anybody want a Bible to follow along with? I can't even tell you what page it is. Raise your hand, and Bill will kind of still. It's on page uh, 345 in, in this Bible, and your Bible won't be unless you have a blue one, all right? So this is uh, 850 B.C. is when this takes place. And you're going to see it's a real against-the-odds kind of situation. Jehoshaphat was known to be, for the most part, a good king. If you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles during that phase of the history of Israel, it will list all these kings and say he was a good king. He was an evil king. There were a lot of bad kings. And the badness of their kingship usually was they allowed idols to exist or they didn't stop the worship of false gods. Jehoshaphat, for the most part, gets good marks. So he's a good king. He made, he made, some, he made a few compromises with 
some other things, but they were considered, at least the Bible talks about them almost in minimal ways. Overall, he was trying to his best to follow God. But let's follow, see what happens here. Says the, this is verse, uh, 2 Chronicles 20, so just listen along, and then we'll highlight a few things. The armies of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and some of the Munites declared war on Jehoshaphat. Messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army from Edom is marching against you from beyond the Dead Sea. They're already at Hazion Temar. Now, go to the next slide. I'm going to give you just a sense of, of, of map here. I like, I like Bible maps, all right? So, Jerusalem was where the star is at the southern half. It was the kingdom of Judah, all right? Again, remember I said the north and the south were split based on civil war. So, these three armies from these three countries, Ammon, Moab, and the southern one, had already amassed on the other side of the Dead Sea. So, they're a 15-hour march from Jerusalem. And you can already tell just the size of those countries, you could probably tell the odds are pretty much against them. Three armies combining against the kingdom of Judah, and they're already amassed, they're already gathered, they're already on the other side of the Dead Sea, and they're heading toward Jerusalem. King Jehoshaphat has 15 hours till D-Day. He has 15 hours, and the odds are way stacked against him. His back's against the wall. All right, so go back to that opening slide for a second there, Stephanie. Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news. And terrified then means what it means now. It means terrified. Emotionally panicked, gripped, paralyzed, afraid. Because it wasn't just his checkbook at stake, it was their lives at stake. It was not just their lives, it was even the existence of the city of Jerusalem because often the armies would come and they'd want to level the town. He's terrified by this news and begged the Lord for guidance. He also ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. So already we see a little bit of what do you do when your back's against the wall. He's already turning toward God. Not in a magic, like a state farmer, like a good neighbor, God is there. Not in that kind of a magic mode, but it's, it's, a, it's a habit of his life to turn himself to God. So people from all the towns of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem in front of the new courtyard of the temple of the Lord, and he prayed. So it was all a big gathering, probably a hot, dusty day, tons of people out there. And he prays out loud in front of the people, O Lord God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. O oh, our God, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give us this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? I always find it interesting when people are reminding God what he did. But there's something about that in prayer that's good for us to remind God, because we're really reminding ourselves, God, you, you, I thought you gave this to me. So they're saying that. He's saying that. Your people settled here and built this temple to honor your name. They said, whenever we are faced with any calamity, such as war, plague, or famine, we can come to you and stand in your presence before the temple where your name is honored. We can cry out to you. We're talking about crying out, lady. We can cry out to you to save us, and you'll hear us and rescue us. And now see what the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir are doing. You would not let our ancestors invade these nations when we left Egypt to come here. So we went around them, but now see how they're rewarding us, for they have come to throw us out of your land. Oh, our God, won't you stop them? You see, he realized they didn't have the capacity to stop them. They had an army, but he knew their, their capacity was way smaller than the armies of these combined countries. He knew 
unless God intervened, uh, Jerusalem would be flattened. He knew that. Just like you might know, unless God intervenes in some situation in your life, something in you might be flattened. We are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. We don't know what to do, but we're looking to you for help. So go to that next slide. The next slide, Stephanie, after the map. We don't know what to do, but we're looking to you for help. So maybe one thing to do when your back's against the wall is this kind of raw, unedited statement to God where we basically say, don't know what to do. But God, I'm looking to you for help. And again, not like magical involvement, you know, not like hocus pocus, but God, tell us what to do. Because you just got done saying, God, you, you, you told us this was our land, but now it looks like it's not going to be. So God, we, we really, and this is the leader of the whole country saying in front of all the people, we don't know what to do, but we're looking to you for help. Because often, if, if, if you're like me, and maybe you have uh, more fortitude than I do, when some of these crises hit, I look to my own wisdom for help. Or I look to somebody else's, uh, how did they handle this situation? How do I do this? What do I do this? And sometimes, whether we like to admit or not, God is not the first resort of our, of our uh, solving the problem. Almost in the sense that maybe you feel like we're copping out because we go to God. I don't know what we think, but for some reason we, or we just tend to think self-sufficiency like Dan had mentioned when he was praying earlier. I, I, I can figure this out. I can figure this out. I'll fix this problem. I'll fix this relational problem. I'll fix this financial problem. I'll fix this problem. I'll fix this um, whatever problem it is you're dealing with, whatever crisis, whatever, wherever your back's against the wall. So what, maybe there's a time Maybe there's a way in which we learn this habit of saying, hey, Jesus, what do, we do? what do I do in this situation? And I'm not talking about big, I mean, as far as I know, nobody's had a vast army march against them lately in this room. But you may have had a relational tension or a strife, and maybe you were part of it, maybe you're not, you don't know, but you're like, okay, okay, God, what do I do? Okay, Jesus, tell me what to do in this situation. You're balancing your checkbook, and you're just like, okay, and... and yeah, maybe you, got in the, maybe you got in the hole because of some choices you made. Maybe not. And again, I'm, you know, God's not always going to rescue us or out of our own foolishness. But if we honestly turn to him and say, God, I, I, don't, I don't know now what to do. But I'm looking to you for help. Um, and we have to have the baseline assumption that our, our prescription of what help looks like the way we believe God should intervene may not be the way he does intervene. I mean, you have to, you have to come to that conclusion because look at all the, the men and women in the Old and New Testament who were martyred because they followed Jesus. I, obviously, Jesus didn't, God didn't rescue them in the way that we think we would have loved to be rescued. I mean, if I'm getting ready to get my head cut off and I'm looking to God for help, I'm thinking he's going to make the axe head break off and everybody falls asleep and I walk out of here. Yes, God can do that, but he doesn't always do that, but he always intervenes. And you might think, wait a minute, how can, you, how can God intervene but somebody still die? The Bible promises that our souls will never be destroyed. That we may, our bodies may suffer, but our souls will never be in, in danger, in that kind of danger. 
So I want to say that first. I'm, I do believe God can intervene and he will intervene in some rescuing ways that may look like and be similar to what you're hoping for. But you also have to realize that his intervention may have a different outcome than what you thought the intervention was going to look like. But it's still intervention, rescue, and freedom. But the point of it unifies all that together is you have to, don't know what to do, and I'm looking to you for help. Give me insight, God. Give me wisdom. Give me wisdom I don't have. Give me insight I don't have. Give somebody on this team insider wisdom. Give my wife wisdom. Give, give somebody some insight or something that helps us know what next step to take. And I believe God does those kind of things. I mean, I do, do believe there's some of these aha moments that when you're reading the Bible and all of a sudden a Bible verse seems to kind of go from 10-point font to 18-point font, and you think, I think this is what God wants me to do. So, but the important thing is turning your heart to God, acknowledging he can do whatever he wants to do, and you trust his goodness, but you're looking to him for help. Now let me uh, stay on this slide, Stephanie, and I'll just kind of go on from here. As all the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, wives and children, the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there. Weird meter moment. The Spirit of the Lord came upon somebody. What does that mean? What did it look like? What did it feel like? Was it like a zappo from heaven? His name was Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of yada, 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 yada. A lot of sons. Not that those guys' names aren't important. I'm just going to read them. And he said, listen, this is after the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Because what happened then, we believe can happen now. We believe the Spirit can, can actually prompt you to say, do something that you weren't planning to do. It's when the Spirit of God gives you words to say through your own mouth. We believe that happens today. We believe people may be gifted in those ways. But all of us, it happened to all of us. And this is what he says. He says, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. This is like, you imagine all this big crowd of people. It's dusty, it's hot. And this guy's yelling out because they didn't have any megaphones or microphones. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march out against them. You will find them coming up to the ascent of Ziz at the end of the valley that opens into the wilderness of Jeruel. Interesting that God gives such detail. I mean, he didn't say just don't be discouraged. And again, we believe God can do that. Now, it doesn't, you might have been in some environments where you, somebody might say, say something like that and you consider them wacky. And there are people that I think really are wacky. So there's a safety factor. You, know, you, you, you allow those words to be spoken by people that you know have a track record or trustworthiness or an integrity of spiritual character. So it doesn't mean if you see somebody in Dunmeadow shouting something that God said, it may not be what God said. So you, you all understand that. You've all been by Dunmeadow or the places where the, some of the street preachers yell out at you on campus. It says, march out, you'll find them coming, but you will not even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you, O people of Judah and Jerusalem. Don't be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. All right, now here's the next one. Watch out, march out, take your positions, then stand still. I mean, wait a minute, we march out to meet them, we take our positions, and then we stand still? That's a battle plan, right? March out, stand still, and watch. 
if you and I are in that army, maybe men and women alike, we're marching out there, and we know this vast army is hours away marching back toward us. Actually, by this point, they're already close by. And you think, okay, we, you know, think of Braveheart or some of those movies you watch where these people, you know, the two armies get closer together. And they're saying, okay, we're going to march out. Okay, that sounds good. We're doing something. But then we're going to stand still. We're going to get going again? No. Okay, we stand still. Then what do we do? Stand there. Do we get our weapons ready? No. What do we do? Stand there. Wait. Watch. Now, you don't, they notice they didn't wait and watch. He didn't say, go run the other way, or you know, just sit down and wait and watch for God to do something. They, they still, God was calling them to action. Do something. You march out there. You think about times in the Old Testament where God didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't split the river, the you know, Red Sea or other places where they crossed under dry land until the priest would step in first. So sometimes what God may be asked you to do is not to be passive. Like I'm just going to sit there and God's going to send me a check in the mail. Or I'm going to sit there and my wife's going to realize that she was wrong all along these last 45 years. I mean, the, the, the passive waiting for the state farm agent to show up is not the way God works. But he often says, Take this risky step, do something, active, but then you have to stand and wait. So there's still our part in doing that, but I just find interest is do, march out, stand still, and watch. Important part of the promise, though, God's with you. You're not marching out there alone. But again, imagine what kind of faith that would take if you and I were part of that army. It's like, okay, we're going out here and okay, because you don't know what's going to happen. The odds would say, the, the Las Vegas odds makers would say, they're still going to all get killed. Odds are against you. What are you doing? But no, that's not what the word of the Lord through this prophetic person who was trusted in the community said, no, this is what we're going to do. So whatever you're facing, financial, relational, future, whatever kind of crisis, wherever you're pinned against the wall, there, there may be something God's asking you to do that you don't think solves the problem and it actually feels even more risky, and, but you do it. Knowing God not may t- he may not tell you what's going to happen next. He's not going to tell you how it ends up. He just says, take the step. I mean, there, there was a time, and I'm not, I've probably done, not done this more than I've done that. I remember one time when I was, years ago, I was really stressed about some personal finance. If I was single, I was in seminary. I don't know what I was stressed about. I was single. Well, you know, I had all kinds of money anyway. Um, but I remember I was stressed about money. I was paying tuition, and, and I really felt like God said, okay, I want you to get a $10 bill, or I think it was $20 bill maybe. I want you to walk to the library of the seminary and just put it on somebody's open study book who's at the bathroom or whatever. It's like, well, God, I'm, I'm stressed about money. You're asking me to give it away? Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. I didn't say that to God. I mean, <laughs> you know. But I remember walking around, and actually there was a friend of mine who I knew was struggling with money, maybe even less than me, but I knew he was struggling, and I saw him get up and go get a drink, and I dropped it on his open book, and I walked away. And I felt like energized. So I thought, okay, God, this is, this is just kind of risky, but I kind of like this. 
But at first, the suggestion to God seemed actually kind of counterintuitive. So the, the, whatever God asks you to do will most likely be counterintuitive and potentially sacrificial. All right? So be willing to do what he asks you to do. Let me finish on now. So this is what they're doing. They're, they're standing there. They're watching. Verse 18. King Jehoshaphat bowed low with his face to the ground. And all the people in Judah and Jerusalem did the same, worshiping the Lord. So you can imagine this scene where the king gets down on his face and everybody else does it too. I mean, as much as we can be embarrassed by those physical expressions of worship, which are all over in the Bible, this was a life or death situation. They knew there was no more inhibition about those kind of things. And there really shouldn't be with us. But in, those, in that case, there was no inhibition. They all, like, we knew it's only going to be God if God does something. Then the Levites from the clans of Kohath and Korah stood to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud shout. Early the next morning, the army of Judah went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. So they're doing what God told them to do. On the way, Jehoshaphat stopped and said, Listen to me, all you people. So now the king is kind of energized. He's got faith because God spoke and they know what... Believe in the Lord your God and you'll be able to stand firm. Believe in the prophets and you will succeed. This next part is the part that really, to me, throws a little bit of the weird meter up. After consulting the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army. Well, I signed up for the choir. I didn't want to do that. <laughs> Singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. I signed up for choir practice. Why, why are we going in front of the army and we're like sitting ducks? Just put your robe on and sing. Well, wait, 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 wait. You're wanting us to go first? We don't have weapons. Yeah, you sing, though. Well, what, are you going to put the enemy asleep? What, what are we singing for? So, for whatever reason, Jehoshaphat felt like God was asking them to put the singers in front of the army. So, I don't know if they wore robes or what they wore, but they were good singers. They sure were good singers. They didn't have any weapons. And they start singing... Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. What does that accomplish? In the next line, I love this next line. At the very moment they begin to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. All right? At the very moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord started doing something. And I won't read the rest of the story, but what happens is the Lord causes... So there, you know, think about it. There's three armies that kind of came together. The minute they started singing, and this happens other times in the Bible, says the Spirit of the Lord, in this case, God does something. He causes them to fight among themselves. Well, that, that isn't totally unlikely because if you have a three-thing alliance, maybe God was putting something in some of their spirits or heart. Oh, wait a minute. The Moabites, they may be against us. And I mean, I could... See, so God... He's not like magically controlling their arms and fists to beat each other up, but he sent a spirit that starts to get them to confuse about maybe we're not for each other anyway, and they start fighting each other, and they all kill each other. And the Israelites were standing there and watching and singing, <laughs> yeah, and singing. But what's interesting is at the very moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused this confusion among the enemy. Now, if they wouldn't have sang, would God have still done that? Let me 
especially since God, if God told him that's what he wanted to do. So what happens? I mean, is it like, okay, we sing, and all of a sudden, what, what goes on there? Their voices are raising. They're starting to sing. Not just sing. They're not singing, you know, we all live in a yellow submarine. They're singing praises about the goodness of God and his love. They're acknowledging what is real about the world and about reality. And when we worship, God, the Bible says, inhabits the praises of his people. So when we sing, even when we sing here this morning, or when we, something more happens than just vocal cords vibrating and sound waves hitting this old tile ceiling. There's something else going on. Because we do believe the invisible world's real. Something else is going on. The Bible says in the book of Psalms that the, God inhabits the praises of his people. And so the general statement I'll make, which I believe is absolutely true, is that when we worship, it welcomes God. When you sing, when you worship, you're opening up yourself to the Spirit of God. And what you're doing is you're opening yourself up to a two-way conversation. And there's other times in the Bible where God begins to act when worship happens. Because when we worship... We're rolling a red carpet out for God to do something because we're acknowledging what is real about the world and what is real about God. And I'm doing this because we are opening ourselves to that reality. And God begins to work. Okay, so wait a minute. You're saying that if I have a negative balance in my checking account, I should just sing over my... sing next to the bank and all of a sudden my money will show up? I don't think that will happen. So are you saying that if I have this problem with this situation with this, my wife or my husband, I should just sing? And that'll make it go away? That's not exactly what I'm saying. But I do think when you sing, when you worship, something goes on. Example, uh, 15 years ago, I was driving to have a meeting with somebody. Nobody knows this person wasn't even in town. And the, the meeting had the potential to be tense. I felt tense. I knew the other person from conversation with them felt tense. And I was driving down, I think it was Interstate 69 somewhere up near Fort Wayne. I can't remember what it was. And I was feeling tense about this meeting. And I thought, okay. And I thought, okay. And I think this story was motivating me at the time for some reason. And I turned on some loud worship song in my car and I started singing along and what I was and I'm just I'm just telling you how I understood this maybe to work I was saying okay God I'm going to sing over this meeting I'm going to have because I want you God to have the preeminence over what happens in this conversation like I was a Christian too and I thought God you you can bring unity to what we need to be deciding here and I started singing and I I actually kind of saw myself and I, I wasn't having like some you know uh marijuana vision or anything but i saw myself singing over me and this other guy talking in his office because in my in my mind what i was really saying to god in my heart was god i want you to be lord over this conversation and i want i want you to be there i believe you're going to be there i'm inviting you to be there i'm wor- i'm inviting you to be there and even if it stresses me and i have to do something i wasn't planning to do that will cost me what i want you to be there and the meeting went really good. Now, is it because I sang? I don't know. If I wouldn't have had that spirit going into that meeting, would it have been different? I don't know. But I do believe something happens when we open ourselves up to worship. At the very moment we open up ourselves to worship. 
It's not a magic button. It's not the staples red button. It says, what does it say? Help? What does the, what does the staples button say? Easy. Yeah. It, I'm not saying, bah, you know, gotcha. Um, so here's what we're... <laughs> so here's the question of the day. Go to the next slide here. So what do you do when your back is up against the wall? Here's what we've said. Cry out. March out. Stand still. Sing loudly. Cry out. Jehoshaphat cried out to God. Acknowledge his inability to solve the problem. Acknowledge that only God could do what he needed to do in that situation to bring glory to himself. Not glory to Jehoshaphat, glory to himself. Cry out. March out. Do what God asks you to do next. Do the next thing he asks you to do. Don't ask for the map. He may not give you the whole map. He'll just say the next thing to do. Cry out. March out. Stand still. That probably is the hardest step for most of us because we like being active in solving our problems. Stand still. Sing loudly. Something then begins to happen. And I believe God begins to do things in our lives. Last slide before we finish here this morning. Second Corinthians. And this is just... Uh, kind of a result of just a lot of my thinking, but even some conversations this week, that we can either solve our crises in life with the assumption that God doesn't intervene, or we can solve crises in our life with the assumption that he does. You have a choice. I think we usually start down this path, then we hit a wall, then we go down this path. My hope and prayer is we all seem to find this path sooner. Because what the Bible tells us is we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. In other words, we're not going to face crises like our friends and neighbors who don't trust God's goodness. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons. The worldly weapons of our intelligence, our good common sense. The weapons of God are often prayer, fasting, worship, trust. To knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. What he's saying is the weapon, how we need to deal with crises. Yeah, yeah you, don't, you don't put your common sense and your smarts and your training, you don't put that off to the side. You don't throw it out the window. You build on that, but the undergirding of it all of it is, I'm going to trust in the goodness of God. I'm going to trust God to give wisdom and insight. So whatever your crisis you're facing, whatever you think is uh, weighing you down, um, Learn, start to learn, as I am still learning, how do I approach this with a real assumption that God can intervene? And however he intervenes, I will be at peace with. But I want him to intervene. I'm not telling him how he has to do it. I'm not telling him what I want the result to be that will most be to my liking. Because then God, then we're just asking God to be like a glorified Santa Claus. And he won't play that role. But if we say, no, I want God, you to intervene in a way that brings freedom, life, wholeness, and glory to you, God. I want, people, I want you to look really good after this, God. I believe God will always, 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 always intervene. And he'll intervene in a way that makes him look good, peaceful, joyful, kind, and powerful. Always. Uh, let's pray. God, we, uh, we do believe in the invisible world. And we believe that you inhabit that place. And that 
places right here. You inhabit this particular space, and you're here among us. You're with us. You say we don't go alone. So whether we're opening up our checkbook, whether we're opening up a conversation with somebody we've had conflict with, whether we're opening up um, our thoughts and plans about the future, that we're not doing that alone. You sit there or stand there right with us. So Jesus, your spirit is always with us, always waiting for us to cry out to you, to follow your leading, and then to, in the end, um, attribute all the goodness and the glory, and we want you to look good, Jesus. We don't want us, it's not about us having practically beneficial lives. It's about you, Jesus, looking better and better to the world around us through our lives. We want people to see that through us. So we want to be those kind of people, and we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.